This is Fine, episode 1.14. Hence I win, tails you lose. Hi, this is Jeremy. And this is Jerry. And today we have a special guest with us, Judith Miller. Judith, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, My name is Judith Miller. I used to be a public defender for federal crimes in San Diego, which is a border district. Uh, And now I teach in a federal criminal defense clinic at the University of Chicago Law School. So what that means is that I take cases, both cases appointed by the court, kind of public defense type cases, and the students work with me on those cases, and also cases that we call our criminal impact litigation type cases, which address a bigger picture issue um, that we think we can help out with. And the students work on those cases too. So they learn how to be an attorney by practicing being an attorney. I think you sent before the show a sort of article that's been talking about one of those areas of focus uh, for your clinical practice uh, over the past year. Uh, You know, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Jeremy's referring to an article about what we call the fake stash house cases. Uh, And I'll start with a bit of a correction. It's actually been, I think, about a little over three years that I've been working on those cases. It's it's been a big project. Um, And so what those cases are about is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms um, creates this fake crime uh, that's really created, managed and orchestrated by the ATF. What it does is an undercover ATF agent or a confidential informant, but I'm going to call that person a CI maybe, uh, offers his targets an enticing jackpot. That's an opportunity to rob a drug warehouse, also known as a stash house, containing a large quantity of drugs owned by cartels. Um, The drugs are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the ATF really emphasizes how easy it will be to get them. They're really guarded only by a few men with guns. And then when the agent finds someone interested, the agent encourages that person to bring his friends. And on the day that everyone's supposed to go rob the so-called stash house, the ATF swoops in and arrests everyone. In reality, there is no stash house, there's no cartel, there's no drugs, no guns, excuse me, no guards, no weapons. It's all just a story. So the ATF is arresting people for essentially agreeing to commit this fake crime. What we're doing, our clinic, is we're working with, um, we're There are a bunch of federal cases here in the Northern District of Illinois in Chicago. Um, There's actually 12 cases pending with about 43 defendants before nine different judges. Um, That just means in plain English, there are 43 people who haven't yet pled guilty or gone to trial in these cases. And we're asking all of the judges in the 12 cases to dismiss the fake stash house cases Um, Because we believe the ATF discriminated on the basis of race in targeting almost exclusively people of color. Really about 92% of the people the ATF targeted for this fake crime from 2006 to 2013 were black or Latino. 79% of them were black. And I mean, these are just extremely troubling results. And why why do you have to challenge them on the fact that the ATF uh, was discriminatory in terms of race, as opposed to just say entrapment? You know, to to sort of the casual, uh, I watch Law and Order at home. Like, wh- why are why is the ATF allowed to make up a fake crime? The ATF is allowed to lie to people. They're allowed to do you know to run around and make up these fake crimes. And entrapment is extremely difficult to win as a defense. 
Uh, I want to say it's almost impossible. It's not actually impossible. The win rate is greater than zero, but it's really, there are a series of technical legal requirements that you have to meet in order to make an entrap, to to run an entrapment defense that most, you know, almost no cases can succeed given those barriers. So there's things like there's this idea of predisposition. Predisposition means, um, you know, is there some reason to think that this person, the defendant, the client, was predisposed to commit this crime in the first place, or is it just the creation of the prosecutors or the uh, the law enforcement? Well, as a practical matter, anyone who has a felony conviction as a prior, especially a felony, I mean, a felony conviction that the jury would hear about if the client testified, that person is going to probably seem predisposed to commit this crime. Um, it's just very difficult you know, not impossible, but extremely difficult to get over that. That's kind of amazing. So that basically, you are um, guilty by by virtue of your prior record, uh, or unable to prevail in an entrapment defense by virtue of your prior record, um, which seems much. Uh, wholly immoral, if, if obviously uh, permissible under current law. Right. I mean, you're preaching to the choir, obviously. (laughs) I am a defense attorney and I completely agree. I mean, I do think that these kinds of things, you know, maybe they are entrapment as a kind of informal, non-legal matter, but it is very difficult. I can't now ask to the people involved with our cases. I can't I can't really speak to whether or not they have a viable entrapment defense. I have no idea. Sure. Um, we are only dealing with the issue of the, the race discrimination, what we call selective enforcement by the um, law enforcement officers, the ATF. Uh, I, I really don't know if any of them have viable entrapment defenses. I can only say, as a general matter, entrapment really is much narrower than is commonly understood. And then, you know, similarly, there's there's another sort of theoretically available doctrine called outrageous government conduct, where basically if the government does something that's just so beyond the pale, so outrageous, then in theory, the case could be dismissed on that basis. Now, a couple of cases out in California were dismissed on that basis. um, And then the Court of Appeals reversed that. So again, this is one of those things that's sort of available in theory, but in practice, not so available. Sorry, uh, what is the ATF's like rationale for orchestrating these these kinds of stings? Like, it just seems to me that, you know, even from like a basic crime fighting perspective, this doesn't really accomplish anything other than, you know, putting people in prison. It's not, it doesn't prevent any crime from happening because the crime never existed in the first place. Well, I mean, obviously I agree. The, <laughs> the ATF would say that, they're, that this is a way of finding and arresting and putting away the so-called worst of the worst. That's what, that's what they say in their press releases. Um, that's kind of their general argument, that the, these people who they're targeting are, have, are, are very bad. Um, and that this is a good method for finding those very bad people. Um, and putting them away. I, I, I obviously think that's incorrect. Um, and I think that our, um, our really our, 
our motion to dismiss and the underlying expert report show that. Um, what we did was we had an expert from uh, at Columbia, Jeff Fagan, who was also the expert in the New York City stop and frisk cases, take a look at data um, underlying our cases and then uh, kind of who could the government be targeting, but they're not, and try to factor out the most important, the factors the government said were important, things related to criminal history, uh, propensity, criminal propensity, issues like that, and then see if the, the racial composition of the people that they targeted uh, was what you would expect one, based on the racial composition of the kind of comparison group. And what he found was that, well, it wasn't. Uh, that in fact the ATF was still targeting a disproportionate percentage of black folks, especially, um, and especially yeah, black folks and people of color. Um, and he also found when you put together, you know, when you when you take a step back and look at the folks that the ATF is targeting, they're targeting folks, some of whom really don't have a serious criminal history, or some of whom were maybe they were once involved with crime, and then they've taken a step away, and they're doing something else right now. Um, it just doesn't seem to be true that they're targeting the so-called worst of the worst. Uh, rather, it's more like they're targeting black folks and people of color. Do you think that, I mean, I know that this is the ATF, so it's a federal agency, but Chicago was also recently in the news for using this sort of risk scoring system, right, to assess um, innocent people's likelihood of being involved in a shooting. Um, is Chicago on the forefront of somewhat objectionable statistical profiling of its citizens? Or is this sort of common and there's just been better reporting uh, of, of the various different things that have been going on in Chicago? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm still kind of looking into some of the Chicago statistical profiling issues myself. So I don't really want to venture an opinion without knowing a little bit more about it. Um, I will say that the statistical profiling issue is pretty fascinating. Um, that's kind of, I mean, I, yeah, I just don't know enough. I, I wouldn't want to venture an opinion that could just be based on nothing. <laughs> Got it. So maybe to, to move away from um, the current cases you're working on and, and into some more um, general topics that, that affect the work that you know you've you've done as a as a public defender, one of the things that we talked about on the last episode of the show were sort of um, you know Michelle Alexander's book and, and particularly some of the changes in, in law that had um, enabled uh, the strong increase in incarceration that happened over the last, uh, you know, 40 years. And I wondered if, if you could sort of speak to um, some, some of these particular tools that have been um, either handed to prosecutors or taken away from, from defenders. Sure. So I will say, I do think you covered the issue of mandatory minimums in pretty great detail last time. So that would have been the number one thing I would have talked about, but I'm not going to talk about it because I think you've kind of covered it. Or I mean, more or less. Um, instead, I thought it might be more interesting to talk about um, some of the shifts, the sort of substantive shifts in the law for when you're litigating a case that, you know, like you said, tools that have taken been taken out of our quiver, essentially. Um, and also some 
uh, maybe investigative issues that I think make a big, a big, a big difference for us. Um, so, you know, I would say that a lot of the substantive legal rules haven't changed a ton over time. So I'm thinking of things like the Fourth Amendment is still the Fourth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment is still the Fifth Amendment. You still have a right to be free from search and seizure. But there has been this huge shift in terms of remedies. Um, and so I think that you could say informally and as a defense attorney, I would say that what that means is that the prosecution, law enforcement can violate the law or violate the Constitution, um, and everybody might agree that they violated the Constitution, but there are no consequences for that. So where evidence might be suppressed 25 years ago, today it wouldn't be suppressed and it would come in. And this, and so some examples of that would be something like um, the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule. Uh, has what that means is the exclusionary rule is this basic principle that if the police violate the Fourth Amendment, that's the Fourth Amendment is your protection against uh, unreasonable search and seizure, then the resulting evidence that they collect and any fruits of that evidence can't be introduced against you at trial. So that's if they stop you without a reasonable suspicion, you know, they can't introduce any illegal drugs that they found on you against it, against you at trial. Now, the exclusionary rule has always been somewhat controversial because there's, to, to be fair to the other side, that there is this idea of they did find the drugs, maybe they should be able to introduce them against you, even if you they did break the law in finding the drugs. Um, but nonetheless, the exclusionary rule, say 25, was the law, is the law, at least in theory. Wait, th this is the fruit of the poisonous tree, right? The, the, the doctrine that says... You know, you, uh, it doesn't matter if um, you were, uh, right, had these drugs and everyone agrees that they're illegal and you had them on you. Like, the reason that we suppress them is for a, a broader uh, social effect, roughly, right? That, that we're suppressing them to ensure the respect for the uh, constitutional rights uh, described in the Fourth Amendment. Yeah, more or less. And then I think that the fruit of the poisonous tree is actually then the next step from that. Suppose they stop you unlawfully and then they search you. And we don't suppress just what they searched, but we also suppress things that they learned as a con. Excuse me. We don't suppress just what they found during the search, but also things that they might have been able to deduce or the consequences of the search. So suppose they find, you know, just, and also, since we're talking about the law, you know, there's a general asterisk to everything I'm saying that this is not legal advice and anyone should, you know, actually research these issues and consult with a lawyer before taking any of this as, as, as really anything. Uh, they're kind of just general, general legal issues, legal principles, but not, you'd have to research them before figuring out how they apply to any particular case. Um, but so, you know, they search you, they find a, they find a letter on you from somebody or other, and that is significant to a case in some way. And they follow up on that and get a search warrant to some other place. Well, you might be able to argue that the warrant itself is invalid because the warrant was a result of the unlawful stop and search in the first place. Um, that's a little bit, sorry, it's a little abstract, but I don't, 
I try I try to steer clear of cases actual cases I've handled when I can. No, that 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 makes sense. I I mean I guess the question then is what sponsored this change in doctrine? If that had been the legal standard, you know, did did Congress pass a law advising uh, people to to observe uh, this in a different way? Did the Supreme Court rule? What, what What's caused this sort of change? So there's been a series of Supreme Court rulings, um, and it's always been a controversial doctrine. Um, but, you know, starting in around 1984 in a case called Leon, uh, the Supreme Court ruled, excuse me, that if the police had a good faith basis for for believing that the search or seizure was lawful, then the evidence is admissible, even if the search or seizure, in fact, wasn't lawful. And so the classic example would be, suppose the police had in their hand a warrant, and in fact, the warrant was not lawfully issued. But the police officer looks at the warrant, and it seems, for all obvious intents and purposes, to to have been lawfully issued. The police officer then goes and searches home and finds some evidence. So the rule then would be that that evidence is still admissible at trial, even though there was no warrant ever lawfully issued to allow the police to seize that evidence. Does that work or for to, to do that search? Does that work for a warrant that that is like what if there's a warrant uh, to search Jerry's apartment, but the police officer searches my apartment with it instead? And just says, "Oops, I I mistook. It's a valid warrant, but I I mistook the the premises for which it was issued." So probably not, because I mean, probably that's not okay. I'd want to look at exactly how the good faith doctrine developed in where you live, because this is one of those things where the doctrine ends up being really complicated and specific. Uh, in a way where I always, I would say, I always end up having to look up the, the specifics whenever I deal with this area of law. Is that because uh, of a state by state or, or um, you know, uh, appellate? Uh... Appellate. It's just that the, these issues come up a lot, and then they're very fact specific. So exactly how the courts have dealt with them kind of just varies. Um, I also really can, since all I've the only criminal defense I've practiced is federal law. I'm really only talking about federal law. Um, I don't, I mean, the Fourth Amendment applies to both the federal government, to federal, the federal, excuse me, federal law enforcement officers and state law enforcement officers. But of course, state courts, to you know, state courts have a role in interpreting how the law works for state officers. Federal courts have a role in interpreting how the Fourth Amendment works for federal officers and state officers, it gets it can be a little bit complicated. But for, you know, for the case of the warrant that has the, the warrant says to go to Jerry's apartment and actually the police end up going to your apartment, probably that's going to be suppressed because this isn't a matter of them mistaking a warrant that looks lawful to them. If they had actually just read the warrant, they would have seen that they went to the wrong place. Um, but the good faith, I mean, what I just mentioned to you, that started in 1984. What's happened over time is that in case over ca- case after case, the good faith exception, that's what it's called, the good faith exception, the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule has been expanded larger and larger. So I think that there's a, a really, in my opinion, outrageous case from 2014 called Hine, and this is another Supreme Court case, where the Supreme Court holds that if the police had a 
good faith but wrong belief that the law prohibited certain conduct, then they can use that wrong belief as a basis for stopping you. And so let me make that kind of more concrete. The issue in Hine actually was about a traffic stop. Now, normally an officer needs reasonable suspicion that you're breaking the law, so a traffic law, for example, in order to stop you. Um, And the police officer in that case stopped someone with a good faith belief, at least according to the Supreme Court, the good faith belief that the driver was breaking the law, was breaking the traffic law. The officer was wrong. The person was not breaking the traffic law and the office just on the text of the law. It was just a, the officer was just mistaken. So, but the Supreme Court said, well, the officer was acting in good faith and it was kind of a, I I don't, I even sort of have a hard time explaining exactly how this decision makes sense. I have to say, (laughs) I'm I'm trying to be as fair, you know, as fair as possible, but but it doesn't, it just is. What it is to have a good faith but wrong interpretation of the law when you're just wrong is not not exactly clear to me. Um, But the officer had a good faith but mistaken belief about the law and stopped the person on that basis. And so that uh, falls within the zone of the good faith exception to the exclusion. But we don't have a a mind-reading good faith machine, right? I was going to add that, um, you know, this seems consistent with sort of a trend that we've seen over the past, you know, number of decades where the subjective beliefs of a particular officer are kind of like end up being the controlling reason for whatever it is that they did. And nobody can gain say that because as Jeremy is saying, we don't have a mind reading machine. So we have these like uh, exceptions or rules like good faith, but like who can really say who has good faith or who can say what a person's state of mind is. So it, it, it all seems like it, it's sort of, it ends up being in reality, we end up with a situation where whatever the officer says kind of like is, you know, taken to be the ground truth and everything else is kind of like, well, you know, oh, those are just, uh, you know, those are just criminals talking, trying to get off. So I, I agree with you, but I want to have with add a friendly addendum, which is just that what's interesting about this area of law and the Fourth Amendment in general and uh, stops in general, and there's some the similar sorts of arguments and issues come up in the area of the Fifth Amendment, which is the right to remain silent, um, is that the analysis is supposed to be objective. The usual rule is if the if the objective facts provided the officer with a basis for stopping someone, then that is a sufficient basis for a stop, even if the officer uh, that wasn't the actual reason why the officer stopped someone. So the officer may have had a reason for stopping someone, but it was an unlawful reason or the officer was wrong or any one of a number of different things. But if the objective facts that the officer was aware of could have served as a basis for a stop, then that becomes a lawful stop, which is, if you're gonna have an objective rule, then let's stick with an objective rule. But like you said, sometimes it seems like the objective rule is the one that comes into play. And other times it seems like a subjective rule is the one that applies, where the question of which one applies really seems to boil down to which one is more beneficial to the law enforcement officer. Um, 
and you end up with a situation of the law enforcement officer explains something and that whatever they say is given quite a bit of credence. Um, and that's especially so for any kind of factual claim where if it comes down to the a difference, you know, the word of the law enforcement officer versus the, the defendant, the officer is going to win every time. So it's heads they win, tails the defendant loses. But here's here's a question, too, because it seems like, and, and I think Jerry talked about this on the last pod a bit, but when the officer is then later proven to be have lied about in testimony, in sworn testimony in court, about either a matter of fact that would speak to an objective standard, or perhaps there's documentation that suggests his or her testimony about his, his state of mind, his or her state of mind, um, was inaccurate. Maybe there's some contemporaneous uh, text text messages or emails or something. What are the consequences for, for the police? Well, I mean, it's very unusual for there to be recognized objective proof that the officer intentionally lied. That's, folks will, you know, the officers and the government and the judges, and there's a lot of... Uh, institutional barriers to the creation of that kind of record. Um, So for example, the officer testifies to something and then it later comes out that the officer was wrong. Well, the officer can say I was mistaken. I mean, the officer, that doesn't have to be a lie. That can just be a mistake. Um, Even if there's a pattern of those kinds of mistakes, so-called mistakes, uh, the officer can you know, just say, I have a lot of cases, you know, it's hard to remember these things. There's all kinds of ways in which it's difficult really to prove in a definitive manner, um, kind of for all time that the officer lied under oath on the stand. Now, of course, we impeach officers all the time. We defend, meaning defense attorneys. We have, we have a report that the officer authored, and then we have evidence of something that contradicts that report. And then we kind of confront the officer with these two contradictions. And we are making the argument that the officer lied or stretched the truth or was mistaken or whatever. And we're asking a jury to believe that. Um, And sometimes a jury believes that and sometimes a jury doesn't believe that. Uh, The consequences though, yes to your question, if you can definitively prove that, then there could be consequences. Um, probably the government is not going to be putting that officer on the stand anymore. They're probably going to be obligated to disclose that information to the defense. Um, those those kinds of consequences. It's just that the there's a lot that goes into preventing that kind of a finding ever from being made in the first place. And, and is that connected to... You know this uh, this doctrine um, that is called qualified immunity is that, um, or is it like kind of kind of an orthogonal uh, sort of thing? And you know, if you want to explain what qualified immunity is for our listeners, that would also be great. Sure. So I think that's a different thing than qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is a doctrine that comes up in civil cases. So I'm going to explain sort of to some degree what it is, but I know about it because I've been practicing criminal defense for a while now. Um, But the idea of qualified, the basic principle of of qualified immunity is that 
if what a law enforcement officer is doing is sort of within the realm of plausibility, um, then even if it's actually illegal, they shouldn't be held accountable in a civil suit for that. That's sort of the plain English version of it. The more technical way of putting it would be you, you undergo a two-step process. One is, sorry, the courts analyze an officer's conduct in a two-step process. One is the right that the officer uh, violated clearly established. That means not just was it established, not can you kind of infer it from other things, but was it sort of you know, 100% clear or very, very clear. There's different ways of talking about what it means to be clearly established. You have to talk to a civil attorney to to, to understand more about that. Um, but what's tricky about that is that there can be something that plainly seems to be the law and a right that you have, but it's not necessarily clearly established. And so if the officer violates that right, but the right wasn't clearly established, then they get away with it. And so then step two is, what is there a right? That's sort of the idea. That's that's what qualified immunity is. So it's orthogonal in the sense that um, for any given officer, they may have severely violated someone's rights, but there may be no recourse, no recourse through a civil lawsuit because they have this immunity uh, and then no recourse through a criminal process for you know a variety of reasons related to everything up to just prosecutorial reticence to to charge a police officer, right? Yeah, I think that that's right. And I also think you know there is this interesting relationship between excuse me the good faith exception and qualified immunity um, that there's this kind of conceptual similarity. There's this clearly established version under qualified immunity, but then part of the good faith analysis is also, did the officer have a good faith basis for believing that his or her conduct was lawful? And that's sort of like, was the right clearly established? Uh, maybe the officer had, the officer's conduct actually was unlawful, but the officer had a good faith basis for believing it was lawful. Well, that's sort of like the clearly established analysis. Um, it's not exactly the same, but it's not a wholly different species either. But, and again, accepting that you're not giving legal advice, uh, that's not a workable defense for a normal civilian, right? I can't go out and uh, claim that I thought, believe something was lawful at the time that I did it, right? Most of the time you can't. Um, there are certain, so we're really, we are getting a little in the weeds here, but most of the time you can't. Every crime has what's called a mens rea and an actus reus. Basically, what was your intent? What, what was the unlawful intent and what's the unlawful act? And sometimes there's certain specific, very specific crimes which require you to know that your conduct is actually unlawful when you do it. So if you believe your conduct is lawful, then that is a defense. But there's, I mean, it's very unusual. Most crimes are not like that at all. All that you have to know is that you're doing the thing. That you're, you're, is it, you might believe that it's lawful to sell drugs. I, I think that would be a difficult claim to make, but you might believe that. Good, have good that's faith, not, Judith. <laughs> it's, that's not enough for a defense. If you know that you had drugs and you were selling them, that's, that's, that's it. That's the end of it. 
as a general matter, no, good faith is not a defense most of the time for most folks. You know, that's something that's special that's reserved for law enforcement. Qualified immunity is not something that, you know, non-law enforcement really ever gets to take advantage of. It's for law enforcement, for government officials. Um, it's really a kind of thumb on the scale that they get that regular folks don't. It's a kind of paradoxical situation because we have this idea that, you know, the state has to, you know, prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. The state should be more responsible because, it, you know, it's the the entity with the monopoly on violence in barbarian terms. And um, but on the, you know, on the flip side, like when you actually look at the way that the system is structured, it's, you know, you know, the state actually has a lot of latitude in how it can deal with you. Yeah, I think that that's right. Um, I guess, yes, I completely agree. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, there is a sort of an internality um, uh, that I sometimes see where it's not that, you know, it's not that any of the folks who are making the rules are bad people. I mean, every some of them are bad people, right? But mainly they're not. They're just folks. Um, they're the people I went to law school with. They're... Some of them are folks I'm friendly with. But what ends up happening is that there are, I think, structural institutional reasons why they're they're usually talking only to other people who are like them and um, end up making institutional rules that favor themselves. Um, and I mean, I think that's part of what you see over time. Um, there is an article I, I would actually recommend. Uh, it's up on SSRN. And I haven't, I'm not going to really be able to talk intelligently about it, but I've read a little bit of it. Um, that's by Mark Osler and Rachel Barco called Designed to Fail, the President's Deference to the Department of Justice in Advancing Criminal Justice Reform. And the basic thesis of the article is when you put the prosecutors, when you put prosecutors and government attorneys in charge of criminal justice reform, then you end up with systematically biased or problematic results. And you see that in the area of clemency, where instead of creating a kind of commission to do wholesale reform, the Obama administration ran things through the Department of Justice and the White House Counsel's Office and ended up with a very piecemeal uh, kind of, I don't know, it ultimately disappointing, in my opinion, um, results with his, 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 his broad clemency initiative. You see it with forensic science where there's, we know that most forensics, that, that a lot of so-called forensic science is just nonsense. Or if it's not nonsense, it's extremely limited. Well, the Department of Justice rejected a lot of the recommendations or really almost all of the recommendations that the high-profile Forensic Science Commission came out with. And those were rejected under Lynch, right? Under Obama? Right. Those were rejected under Lynch, under Obama. Attorney General Lynch is a prosecutor. She's been a She was a prosecutor for a very long time. And it's not that she's a bad person, but, you know, she's part of a government institution. And I think that there's this tendency sometimes to see prosecutors as the saviors who will come in and save the day, but they're captured institutional actors just like everyone else. Um, and I think it's worth thinking about how could we include 
people who are more skeptical of um, the government's prosecuting authority, which I do think is really where the, the rubber meets the road on the monopoly on violence um, in some you know, larger scale decision making. Um, so that means appointing more defense attorneys as judges, appointing more defense attorneys to these decision making commissions um, by that are involved that are in the federal government. Um, you know, there should have been a defense attorney on the NSA commission, I think. Or the, the one that exa examined the, the various revelations about the NSA. Um, things like that, I think, would, would really help a, a lot. It's, it's good that you mentioned prosecutors because, you know, we, we talked briefly about this on the previous episode. And we talked about the latitude that prosecutors have to charge or not charge people and sort of like – and there's very little constraint on their – behavior in some ways, you know, possibly even less constraint than on police officers. And I was, you know, we were hoping that you could uh, maybe talk a little bit about how, you know, how you see this dynamic unfolding, like has anything, you know, changed over time? And sort of what can the prosecutors do, both, you know, in the lead up to a, um, you know, I don't know, trial or whatever, uh, that, for example, um, you know, defense attorneys can't do? Um, and how is that? You know, how, how are you, you, you mentioned uh, before, uh, you know, we started that in some ways defense attorneys' hands are tied and we were hoping that you could compare, um, you know, compare that action with, compare what you can do with what prosecutors can do and explain how that manifests itself. Sure. So I think that it's really, it all starts even before charges are brought. So the police are allowed to lie to you. That's, I think, a key thing that is really important to know. Um, it's it, They can lie in interrogation, but I think there's a more insidious way, which is there's this, you know, they can be undercover agents, which is essentially a performance. They're lying about who they are, what their goals are. They can have confident, the, they can have confidential informants who are, betraying the people that they know. Now, I'm using sort of some loaded words here. I, I think that the, the police would, there are reasons why they're allowed to do this, but that doesn't change the bare fact that they are permitted to misrepresent who they are, what they're about, for the purpose of getting evidence against you. Um, so that all happens before charges are even brought. So they're, they're allowed to lie and they're allowed to spend more or less as much time as they want collecting evidence against you um, up to the statute of limitations before you even necessarily know that someone is trying to bring charges against you. Um, so now they've brought charges against you and there's this mountain of evidence. Well, now there's like an all, all of a sudden there's this pressure to move the case along. So you're finding out about the cases, you're the case, you're finding about, out about the evidence for the first time. Your attorney, the attorney is given maybe thousands of pages of discovery and is supposed to review it really quickly, come up with what are your legal, the legal strategy for a defense going to be and investigate whatever there is to investigate that could be a defense. Well, instead of having maybe years to investigate, there's a, a much shorter period of time because now there are charges. Now we need to move things along. Um, 
And moreover, the ways in which a defense attorney and an investigator who works for a defense attorney can investigate are very different than the ways that the prosecution or the law enforcement, the police that works with the prosecution can investigate. We are not allowed to lie to people. That's sort of the general rule, exactly how that plays out in the specific situations. Again, you'd have to consult state ethical rules. But the general principle is don't lie. Don't lie. Don't misrepresent who you are or what you're about. So that means if I or my investigator want to go question someone, we can't say that, you know, there are certain things pieces of evidence are there or are true that are not true. We can't use certain kinds of essentially trickery that the police can use to try to get someone to admit to something or make a statement or, you know, anything like that. Um, we can't really send in an undercover investigator. You know, if you watch TV shows, I think you see defense investigators using all kinds of tactics that are just, you know, I'd lose my bar card if I had, if I ever allowed an investigator to do them. Um, again, asterisk, consult your state-specific bar rules. But, you know, I mean, I don't, I can't send someone in. I can't have someone pretend that they, an investigator who is working for me, pretend to be someone, you know, pretend to sort of befriend someone under false pretenses. That so that's could interesting. potentially be risky. So we have so we have an adversarial system, but in terms of the evidence gathering that the defense has, they're severely handicapped relative to what law enforcement or, or the prosecutor's uh, agents can gather on, on behalf of the prosecution. That's absolutely the case. You know, there are even kind of other examples of, think about a recording, for example. In, in many states, you need both parties to, cons- to, to a conversation, to consent, um, before you can record a conversation. Um, you know, like, I consented to the recording of this podcast, and you were consented to the recording of this podcast. So you have, you know, my permission to re- record the podcast, and that's that. Um, well, the federal government, at least, sometimes can get authority with nobody's consent. Uh, I mean, well, the consent of a judge, but neither of the two parties to a conversation to a wiretap. There's no not, no equivalent to that for the for the defense. Um, I can't apply for a wiretap and get it if I, you know, prove anything really. There's just it's just not available. Similarly, if the government is using a confidential informant, the confidential informant can usually wear a wire. And even if only the confidential informant consents, that's enough to allow the conversation to be recorded. And there's a joking, sometimes we'll call it a press play case, but all the government needs to do is press play. Um, There's no press play defenses. And the government also has more currency in the sense that if they have a, a jailhouse informant, they can bribe that person with sentence reduction, right? In many jurisdictions. And that's, well, really, in any any jurisdiction. And you can't offer any anything to that person, right? So I actually don't know if they can offer money or some of those things. They definitely can offer a sentence reduction. Um, and this is something... So defense attorneys have tried to challenge this as bribery, and I, it seems like bribery to me. 
Um, but the fact is every court to have addressed this issue ultimately has decided that there's an exception to the bribery statutes that allows federal process, at least with the fed- with regard to the federal government, I don't know about what the state government, state, state prosecutors, but that allows federal prosecutors to give the witnesses time off in exchange for their testimony. Now the prosecutor would say, well, I'm only offering time off in exchange for truthful testimony, but the prosecutor decides what what is the truth. Um, and, you know, I, I recently, I went, I, I saw a trial where there were folks who had convictions for perjury. I think either it was either a conviction for perjury or the threat of a perjury charge. And they were testifying in favor of the prosecution in exchange for a sentence reduction. And it's just, you know, to see that it just boggles the mind. How is this not bribery? Um, but there's nothing, you know, we're certainly not allowed to do that. Um, our witnesses, we don't pay witnesses. We don't have, we don't promise them, you know, sentence reductions. We don't promise them anything. You know, maybe we'll give them a ride to court. That's it. That, that's not really a, that, that's not really a thing that counts. It sounds like there's sort of no wonder that so many people plea out. Although I guess, you know, in an attempt to be mildly normative, is there something that, and I know we haven't even gotten to trial yet. So this is this is literally all pre-trial and, and just having the charges have been filed. But is there anything that would re- reduce the amount of, uh, or, or the ratio of criminal defendants who at this point in the process go, wow, the deck is so stacked against me. Um, I am just going to accept the plea. Well, you know, change the mandatory minimums. (laughs) It's, you know, it's my, so I never practiced in a world without large mandatory minimums and without, I never practiced in the pre-sentencing guidelines world, but it's my understanding that a lot more defendants went to trial um, before the guidelines and before the really intense mandatory minimum regime that we currently live under. Um, you know, when your when your choice is take a plea to ten years or or go to trial, and if you lose, it's twenty years. You know, you take that that, that plea is a, a. It's hard to say. Don't take that plea. Or in a world where the sentencing guidelines were mandatory, it's hard to say. Don't take the plea that will manipulate the guidelines a little bit. Have you had? And I know you can't speak about individual cases, but have you had defendants who you thought should have gone to trial? who you felt did have compelling defenses, who took pleas? Yes. It's interesting that, that this is like literally the prisoner's dilemma. You know, not a figure of speech, but this is literally the prisoner's dilemma where, you know, if every single person who was, you know, brought up on charges demanded a jury trial, the entire system would ground to a halt. But any individual per, for any individual defendant, it's definitely in their not definitely, but it may very well be in their best interest to accept the plea. So the individual interest is to defect, but the, you know, the collective interest might be to cooperate. Right. And so what I was actually going to say is, so that's even another kind of set of problems or difficulties where I think of this as the prisoner's dilemma is really just one example of a collective action problem in criminal the world of criminal defense as opposed to the prosecution. The government can strategize across cases. They can pick the best, the case with the strongest legal issues, the most compelling facts. They can decide to move forward with one legal theory and not another theory. They can 
they can do a sort of strategic litigation across cases and coordinate. Defense attorneys typically can't do that. Each attorney, excuse me, is appointed to represent one client and is required to represent just the one client or to zealously represent that one client. Um, what that means is that sometimes you'll run into all sorts of different collective action problems. Sometimes it'll be that the the best legal argument for your particular client is bad for other sort of criminal other defendants or for many criminal defendants, maybe even the majority, your obligation as a criminal defense attorney is nonetheless to make that argument because your legal, your ethical obligation is to just that one client. Sometimes it'll be something like what we might call a vehicle problem. Your case is honestly kind of weak on a particular legal issue. Maybe there are some bad facts. Maybe your client has an ugly criminal history. Who knows? Something that means that for whatever reason, if you take your case, your version of the legal argument up on appeal, well, you might end up with bad law. You might lose. You might end up with bad law because of some of the particulars of your case. However, you're still obligated to do that because it's still your, you know, as long as your client has, this is what's in the best interest of your individual client, you're obligated to do that. It's not like... Um, you know, think about any normal kind of impact litigation group like the ACLU or, you know, NAACP, they get to pick their clients. Um, and as I understand it, they, 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 they are very careful about picking, picking clients that they think will help them win. Right. And exactly for the reasons you mentioned, they're very averse to choosing cases that they think will will lose in uh, particularly bad ways for for the law going forward. Right, but we don't we don't get to do that, um, and you know we just we fight for when you're a, especially a public defender you really don't get to pick your cases you just take whoever you're appointed and you fight as hard as you can for that individual person even if there may well be some negative consequences for other folks or even for the next person who you're going to represent and you may well know it at the time that it's happening. And then there's, like you said, the prisoner's dilemma type situations where, you know, if everybody went to trial to crash this and crash the system, that would make a big difference. Or if, if everyone, um, there's a bad set of a bad standardized plea offer that's being made. Well, if everybody rejected that plea offer, the plea offer would get better. Um, and you know, there are incentives for each individual person to defect. A lot of the time, not I think in every case, but a lot of the time, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to coordinate in a way that complies with one's ethical obligations um, in those situations. And I guess I, I do want to speak to that a little bit because um, Jerry and I had talked before last episode, I think, about in New Orleans, um, you know, the there's been a habit of going after public defenders um, to try and either prosecute them on various things or bring them up on, uh, you know, bar violations, different ethical violations, and really prevent them from doing their work. Um, again, you know, I, I guess I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit, but do you see that as something that is increasingly more common? Is that perniciously constrained to 
um, you know, the most incarcerated place on earth, uh, you know, Louisiana, or like, because you've, I, it's a theme I've noticed in your commentary tonight. Um, you've mentioned several times how careful you are uh, in thinking through um, all of the the various different ways you don't want to misstep uh, in terms of being a defender. And, and frankly, just from reading the news, it, it doesn't feel like prosecutors apply that same level of care at all. So you're right. That's really speculative. Uh, <laughs> um, so I can't say whether or not this is on the rise or not. You know, I, I really don't know the answer to that. But what I see in New Orleans, it, you know, it seems maybe if I can take off my criminal defense hat for just a minute and just say it seems appalling, you know, the prosecution of the investigator and also the subpoenas, the fake subpoenas that they sent out. Sorry, my voice is rising because I'm so outraged by this. Um, I'm sh- This is where the, the prosecutors have sent out these sub- fake subpoenas. They're just they're just issued by the prosecutor's office with no legal authority, um, where they tell people that they're required to come in and talk to the prosecutors and could potentially face jail if they don't. And they look like legal documents. They don't, they look like there's something issued by a court that you're required to comply with. Nobody, you know, if you're a random person, you wouldn't know that that's not a an actual legal document. And the idea that the same prosecutor's office that prosecuted that poor investigator is sending out fake government documents, giving, telling people false things about the law, just, I I mean, I'm, I'm speechless. If you could see me, I'm waving my hands in the air and spluttering. Um, I think that's the only sensible response. I I don't know what else you could say. (laughs) I mean, something like that, it's not an accident. You know, I'm, I feel like I, look, the job of being a prosecutor and the job of being a police officer and the job of being a defense attorney and the job of being a judge, these are all hard jobs that mistakes happen. I don't want someone's career to be over because they screwed something up. Um, I think that, you know, that that's, we, you know, you have to sort of imagine how it is, what it is to have a heavy caseload, to be trying your best, like mistakes do happen. And I understand that. But something like these subpoenas, there's that, that that's not, it's hard to see how that's plausibly a mistake. Um, so that was, sorry, that was a really specific example. Um, but, you know, I just, I really hesitate to make broad claims about, whether or not this is increasing or decreasing. Um, And I certainly, as a, you can say what you think about the difference between the defense and the prosecution here. Certainly it feels that way that, that, you know, I have to be constantly watching what I'm doing and the prosecution doesn't. Well, it feels like prosecutorial, um, it feels like prosecutors are increasingly protected from their misconduct, uh, if not as a matter of law, but just by various court decisions. I mean, to the extent that when I think it was Alex Kaczynski, but maybe I'm wrong, in in the Ninth Circuit, basically pulled a judicial uh, WTF about some misconduct. It was it was national news, like oh, someone actually uh, you know 
uh, stood up to this and said, what's going on? Right, but stood up, but nobody got in trouble. I mean, that's the thing is the prosecutors typically aren't named if they do commit misconduct, if, if they are found to have committed misconduct. I don't see a lot of consequences. Um, now, if you talk to a prosecutor, the prosecutor would probably say something very similar to what I said, that they would say, look, we are incredibly careful. I don't want to pretend that nobody ever makes mistakes, but, you know, we try really hard not to make mistakes and we try really hard to comply with our ethical obligations. And I can say, you know, I've never been a prosecutor. I can't, I don't know exactly, to, to be fair, I don't know exactly what it is to, to have to live with their set of ethical obligations and their set of constraints. But I, I honestly, Judith, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is like a power law, like other, you know, like something like 80% of civilian complaints are against, you know, a small fraction of police, right? I bet if you were to, to run a study, um, you'd find a similar thing for prosecutors. That's completely uninformed speculation, I should note. But I, I mean, a thing that I guess I'd, I'd say on this is that at least with police, you have internal affairs departments and you have the idea of supervision occasionally by the federal government, DOJ, not under Sessions, obviously, but, but under the Obama administration, stepping in on local municipality police departments. It feels like for prosecutors, there's not a similar... Um, custodial apparatus to, to police prosecutorial misconduct, um, you know, uh, in really much of a fashion, maybe maybe U.S. attorneys under their, you know, could go down to subordinates under their purview, but. Well, so there are, I mean, as I understand it, and I have a pretty limited, my understanding is limited in this area. If there is a finding of misconduct of some kind against a prosecutor, a judicial finding, then there is some almost automatically there's some kind of internal investigation of that person um that can be somewhat serious um the only time i've talked with a prosecutor who had that happen to them um that person was extremely chastened and in fact did change that person's behavior having gone through that that experience um so, so there are some kinds of I, but i don't know I just don't know much about that. Um, so I probably could have someone on your show to, to talk about that who's more expert than me. I, I don't know if we want a prosecutor on the show. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> I don't know any prosecutors. I mean, I, so so I guess that limits the option for having one. Listeners who are prosecutors, please email us. Yeah, so. if you're a prosecutor and you want to give your side of this story, I guess uh, you can get in touch with us and, uh, you know, we'll see what we can do. But, you know... I do think there are there is a self thumb on the scale. I do think you're right to say that there are a series. There are a lot of different ways in which prosecutors end up being protected from, even if they do commit misconduct, they're protected from the kinds of consequences that defense attorneys have to face. So I guess this kind of brings us to you know a the concluding portion of the show where we uh, you know try to take what uh what we've heard here and maybe derive some kind of like idea about what can be done about this what kind of policies could change to make things better to maybe equal out the burden between uh defense attorneys and prosecutors any any thoughts any ideas about this well i mean i will say i do think getting rid of 
the extreme mandatory minimum sentences that we currently face would make a huge difference. You know, we haven't talked much about sentencing on the show, but I do think that that back end is a lot of what drives the front end of the decisions that a defense defense attorney and a client make. From the other angle, could more public defenders um, run for DA? I mean, you know, in in Philadelphia, it seems like there's an interesting experiment that's going to happen. But it feels like there are a lot of progressive cities or cities where, um, you know, progressives and persons of color are in the substantial majority that that have uh, elected, uh, you know, uh, DAs or other positions. And I, I wonder if, you know, arguably these positions shouldn't be elected, but to the extent that they are elected and in progressive areas, maybe this should be a, an electoral focus. And concrete example is New York City, where Cyrus Vance Jr. is running unopposed on your standard, like, you know, pretty harsh law and order type platform. So here we are. I'm not sure about the answer to that. I was thinking about that because there is this problem to flip it and put the shoe on the other foot. There's a problem with public defense offices where sometimes they put the fox in charge of the hen house and a prosecutors end up having a role in deciding who's going to be the head of the the office or defense attorneys are excluded from playing a role in that and that feels really wrong it feels it, it seems to undermine there's in fact some ethical guidance on that but that would really undermine the defense function and so in a world where we have adversarial we have an adversarial system i'm not sure about having a kind of career public defender say in charge of the office of the prosecutors maybe there should be certainly more of a consulting role or some kind of role but i'm i'm not I'm not sure about that. What about for judicial elections or or appointed federal judges? Yes, I strongly believe that there should be more defense attorneys, criminal defense attorneys and public defenders um, appointed to those positions who should run for those offices. Um, But, you know, we're not a popular bunch. (laughs) Uh, I mean, sometimes the sometimes over the course of your career, there's the, the someone wants to comb through every single person you've ever represented to be able to find someone and say, oh, you're a terrible person for defending that person. Um, it's, there's a, that's the reason, I think that's the main reason why you don't see so many defense attorneys on the bench, especially in a place where you have to run for office. Um, but I do think that would help. I mean, the, the response, so once it's interesting, I think there's this response that says, well, former prosecutors are better because they know what should be done. They can tell from the inside when a, um, a prosecutor is, isn't playing fair. And I guess I would say, I just don't think that that really is enough. Um, I've certainly appeared before judges who were former prosecutors and who are excellent judges, extremely fair, you know, gave me a, gave my client and me a fair hearing. And that's really all I can ask for. Um, but I do think that there is a oftentimes still a kind of institutional bias or even the leftover sort of institutional loyalty where the judge misses things. They miss a certain skepticism. There's a sometimes even a little bit of a failure of imagination. Um, and I can tell, you know, a story leaving, leaving out names. I once had the opportunity to talk with a judge about um, qualified immunity. 
and the judge, uh, the judge responded at some point in the conversation with, um, you know, it's almost as if you think that the, there shouldn't be any qualified immunity for the police. You know, it's almost as if you think the police should have to just obey the same law as everyone else. That's so shocking weird. heresy. Right. right. Yeah. As if as if it was somehow beyond the imagination of this judge that a lot of people think that that's actually a very common point of view. I mean, here we are in this here, not you guys, but here I am in the city of Chicago. Uh, I bet that probably and I'm sitting here at the University of Chicago Law School in Hyde Park, I bet that most everyone within a five-block radius of me, with the exception of folks here at the law school, believes that. Um, now, I, I, to me, that's just, that's very telling, that there would be someone who's a judge in a position of great power and authority who doesn't seem to be able to imagine that 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 possibility that maybe we should just get rid of qualified immunity entirely. Um, so I think that that's the kind of thing where having more defense attorneys um, as judges would would make a difference, and also having more defense attorneys on kind of insti- as institutional decision makers um, within instead of within the, we say within the Department of Justice or within um, the executive branch, I think that, that that would be helpful. To speak to the to the point about judges again, that's a very good point that you're making just about personal experience. Like, regardless of the interpretive legal philosophy of the judge, um, having a judge who has grown up in an experienced and work experience, a space that incorporates a broader section or at least a different section of opinions held by people I I think is a valuable tool right because you you know we restrict the possibility space to opinions that that we've encountered ourselves and so I I I think that is a really um you know uh it's a it's a it's a really good point you make about right this this was so alien to this judge's experience and and I think that's actually a good argument in, in itself for um all, all sorts of types of diversity, not just occupational diversity uh, yeah. on the federal bench. I think that that's right. Um, and I should also add just, you know, again, a little asterisk. It did change some details of that story. It, the core of it is still true. But, you know, again, I wouldn't want to misrepresent myself, speaking of our earlier, the earlier part of our conversation. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree I, that that kind of diversity of experience helps expand exactly what you said. Um, you know, I mean, there are also some, there are some, I guess I would say is, you know, put more defense attorneys on the bench, change mandatory minimums, change charging policies in way, in a way, sometimes it's hard to say exactly what the uniform fix is because sometimes it's allow more discretion to individual prosecutors. And sometimes it's allow less discretion to individual prosecutors, um, I certainly think the move by set ju- the new attorney general, Jeff Sessions, um, to change charging policies is not helpful. Um, where the essentially what's happened with federal prosecutors is um, there's direction from on high about how they should charge their cases. 
And so before the Obama administration, under the Bush administration, there was attorney general under Attorney General Ashcroft, um, the uh, prosecutors were supposed to charge uh, basically the the highest put in the highest charge that they thought they could prove. Um, and they were just supposed to do that across the board. So Holder come, uh, hold, excuse me, Attorney General Holder is appointed, and he withdraws that guidance and allows a lot more discretion to prosecutors to charge things according to what they think is the appropriate charge in a given case. Well, some, excuse me, Jeff Sessions is now the Attorney General, and now we're back more in the land of Ashcroft. Um, and exactly how this is going to play out is somewhat unclear. It's all still being interpreted and figured out by the um, the local offices, but who, who are doing so without their U.S. attorneys, which I think is probably so probably quite difficult. I mean, again, I wouldn't. I don't know. I guess I don't know enough about how internal policymaking works in their offices. They do all have acting U.S. attorneys. It's not that decisions aren't being made. Decisions are still made. There, there's someone in the position of U.S. attorney. It's just not the person who was nominated by President Trump and approved by the Senate. Um, but so they're working these things out. And th- these kinds of, you know, the Sessions Memorandum is not, it's not helpful in terms of um, kind of fairness and reducing mass incarceration. But I don't think it's intended to be. I mean, it, he and I have different views about those issues in the criminal system. Well, Judah, thank you very much for talking with us. It's been a really wonderful hour of information, um, you know, and uh, I think that our listeners will really appreciate your expertise and the input, you know, that you've made into this conversation. I think it's been really great. Thank you so much. Oh, I was happy to be here. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Of course. It was our pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for being on. Talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode and uh, that the things that Judith said uh, have been interesting and educational for everybody. We'll be back in two weeks uh, to discuss, I think, an undercovered scandal, the Iran-Contra scandal, and in particular, the ways that that did not bring down a presidential administration and really the ways in which there was very little punishment for anyone involved. Thank you for listening.